Okay. So, ready for the long day today, everyone, right? Yay! All right. At least pretend. At least pretend you're ready for it until class is over. Yay, we're gone. We don't have to see him for a couple days. Okay. Article review due today. So you can turn those in between here in lab, after lab. You can email them to me tonight if you haven't. As long as I get them in my mailbox before midnight. So make sure they come before midnight. Otherwise, I have to mark them late. So. So if you need, if you haven't started it yet, as I'm sure there's probably one person out there who completely forgot about it. Maybe you didn't start it, but you knew about it, or maybe you just completely forgot about it. You still got a chance. So you still got till the end of the day. Of course, now you know what you're doing today, but that is due again by the end of the day today. So I'll be here, you know, after class. If you need to go print it out or something, I'll be down after class in my office. I have office hours right after for an hour, so I'll be there till at least noon if not a little later. So you can turn it in there. You can, if you prefer to turn in a hard copy, even if it's later this afternoon, you can leave it in my mailbox there in the office, which is downstairs in 138. You can leave it there or email it to me if you're going to do it that way. Either, either one is fine. I mean, the offices will be locked up all weekend, so if you leave it now, I'll get it. I probably won't be in. I won't get it till Monday morning, but as long as it's there, I know it was there Friday because I'm usually the early bird who opens up on Monday, so you're not going to beat me in here probably to You'd have to be in here pretty early to beat me in. You also have this weekend the first quiz, the iTunes U quiz. I know a number have taken it already. There was one question that was an issue and is probably getting thrown out. So if you have one that you're confusing, I've had a couple people come to me on it already that you can't find. They can't find where I talked about the answer. There was a problem with it and I went back and checked that one. So that one is probably getting thrown out. So one of them, don't worry about the one, and I'll take care of that. But it is based on these pictures. It is available through Sunday night, so make sure you take it by the end of the day, Sunday. And homework number three, for, again, for right now, these two are tentative dates. So go with the dates that are on the syllabus for now. If they change, then I'll let you know next week. But homework three is due the 30th of September, next Friday. I really don't see us getting through all of the material on it by then, but you know, if you can start on the stuff on the planets as we go through the planets, you can have some of it done at least instead of finding out I got it went a lot faster than I thought. And the quiz, again, I have is scheduled for next week. Again, we're shifted off one day anyway because we lost a day there, so likely that will go a little bit later into October. We will, have, we will finish the section on the planets that we're starting today and the section on the sun before the quiz is due. So. I may have to extend that as well. But again, those are the dates on the syllabus. Go with those for now, and then I'll change them as need be next week when I see how fast we get through the planets and into the sun. So hopefully we've at least started on the, we should be starting on the sun at least sometime next week. So that's what's coming up in terms of assignments. And then somewhere after there, we also have an exam schedule, second exam scheduled. So second exam is not too far behind. Not too far behind this. We'll be at, it will not be until after we finished chapter 9 because it will be on chapters 3, 4 to 8, and 9. So we will have finished the sun, which hopefully will be the following. So looking for the week after that probably will be the exam, most likely at some point. And I'll give you a final date on it for sure once I see exactly where we're, where we're heading. Questions on the assignments? No, 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 okay. Picture for the day, picture of the day for today. September's aurora. First picture of fall. As of 5.05 this morning, it is now fall. Which technically means, I mean astronomically means that 
you know, sometimes it seems like fall ended in, on August 22nd, right? You know, school started, we're, fall's, summer's over. But in terms of astronomy, it happens when the sun crosses the celestial equator. So it moves from the northern hemisphere of the sky to the southern hemisphere of the sky. And that's what happened at 5 o'clock this morning, Eastern Time. So that means if you make a solar observation any time after now, if you've made others and if you've done some of the calculations, I know a couple people have you know, emailed me or looked at the calculations, you're not required to, but you should have been getting positive numbers for the declination. It was in the northern hemisphere for this first month. Anything you make from now on, if you do the whole calculation, and you don't have to, you should get a negative number at the end. So. If you want to go through them, if you ever want to go through them, I'll be happy to sit down with you and go through them. I have an assignment coming up in November that we'll do where I have you go through it as one of our labs that we're going to go through the calculations so I know everybody can, everybody's comfortable, as comfortable as you can be with math doing them. So for those who hate the math, at least you're here with me, not sitting there ripping all your hair out and then end up looking like me instead. So, okay. Now our actual picture of the day doesn't have anything to do with that except that it was on that on this day, but that's actually a picture of a bunch of green clouds, right? No. Actually the aurora. So this is taken from northern Canada. These aren't clouds. This is actually light glowing in the upper atmosphere. And what happens is the sun, which is getting unusually energetic right now, sends out charged particles. So it's so-called a solar wind and it comes out, all, goes all the way out into, sp all out into space and some of it strikes the earth. When it strikes the earth, it excites the molecules in the atmosphere and causes them to glow. Sort of as we talked about with our little tubes, right? When we excited our tubes, they glowed. Well, here we're exciting things like oxygen and nitrogen, and they're glowing, and they look green. So we are seeing the light from the, that's glowing in the upper atmosphere. Now, when you see the aurora, you always see the pictures are taken in Alaska, they're taken in northern Canada, they're taken in Scandinavia. That's because they're very far north, and that's where the Earth's magnetic field comes into the Earth. It comes in, the field lines come into the North Pole. So when you look at the magnetic field of the Earth, it's so some kind of field lines are like this. Not, not the prettiest, but you know. So when the Sun is sending these particles here, these charged particles, charged particles and magnetic field lines don't like each other. So charged particles can't just come straight through and hit the Earth. So it's actually a buffer for us and protects us from the solar wind coming in. But they do, it does funnel the particles along and down to, towards the pole, North Pole of the Earth. Now the North Magnetic Pole is in Canada. It's in Northern Canada. So where these particles actually can get through the easiest and strike the atmosphere is very close to the North Pole. North Magnetic Pole of the Earth. Not the North Pole, North Pole, but the North Magnetic Pole, which they're off a few degrees. The stronger the magnetic, the stronger the wind coming in, the further down they get in latitude. So they'll come further down the Earth and be more visible as this gets stronger and stronger. So when the Sun is very, very active, you can see the aurora much further south. When the Sun is less active, you only see it up north. So that's why most of the pictures, this was taken in northern Canada, and most of them you'll see are Canada, Alaska, Scandinavia, all the very, very far north places. But you can sometimes see them lower, especially now as the nights are getting longer. Right now we're past to the 12 hours of day and 12 hours of night. And 
as the sun is getting a little bit stronger. Now this is also, and we've done video, they've done videos for this before which kind of work out a little bit nicer because here you get the impression of clouds. It's very pretty but you get the impression that they look like clouds. And it's really just a glowing light. And you can actually see through them. You can tell the difference because you can see even this dark one here, that's pretty bright. Can you still see a line traveling through it? Those lines are stars. So what was done here was the camera was opened and you took an exposure of the sky and you left it open for 20 minutes or so maybe. So the star, in that time the earth turned so the star appeared to move in its little circular path along the sky as they appear to move because of the earth. If that was a cloud there, you wouldn't be able to see that path. That would have blocked it out. Just this glowing light, we can still see the starlight coming through it. And you'll see a bunch of those. You can see a bunch coming through here, here, here's another. Those are just, those are just different stars coming through. So that is our aurora for the day. And again, there's been some videos of it that they show that are really pretty nice. And hopefully they'll do one for us later this semester so we can time it and see it. If not, I'll find one, find one and show it. Okay, questions, questions, questions. No? Okay. I owe you one video later. I'm going to do it at the beginning of the lab class though because I promised you the one, I think I promised you the one of the Hubble with the Hubble launch from 20 years ago. I do have, I have, I've gotten it but instead I'm going to go ahead and start on the planets now because I don't think our lab is, it's another relatively short lab getting you used to the sky so it's probably not going to take the whole time so I'm going to go ahead and take about five minutes at the beginning and show you that video at the beginning of the second part of the lab instead. So we're going to start talking about the planets. And again, you're going to notice we're going to breeze through. We're going to breeze through this. I'm going to be skipping lots of sections in your book. The sections that I go over here and the parts of those sections are the ones you want to look at. So don't. Sit, you're welcome to read all five chapters. I think they're interesting, but I know you have 50 other assignments due from all your other classes and all the stuff I give you. So don't, don't sit there and feel you have to emphasize five chapters that we're going to be covering in the next week. Yes. I have an question. Sure. Oh, I was going to mention that. I just looked on NASA before I started and they have not said that it's hit yet. Yes, I was going to mention that. I mentioned that in the other class. But apparently the North America is safe. Last I heard as of this morning. They said that it's supposed to hit, it is supposed to come down today though. But yeah, I had just checked on NASA just before while we were waiting for class and they did not. Yeah, there was a news story that said it's part that you find parts of it that don't touch it. Yeah. I mean, most likely it will hit in the it'll hit in the ocean. I mean, the Earth is three quarters ocean, so it's a pretty good chance. Of course, the same was true of Skylab when it fell, if you remember that years ago, and it hit partly in the ocean and partly in Western Australia, which of course Western Australia is hard, not many people, so it didn't do a lot of damage anyway. But it'll break up, but it will, big parts of it will come down. And it will be. And that's something, I mentioned this in the other class, that's something they've changed now with NASA has changed. This was satellite was put up about 20 years ago before they came up with some kind of what goes up must come down rule. So if you're putting something into a low orbit now, it has to either be designed to break up in the atmosphere and burn up completely so never come back down and one piece that's going to hurt anybody or it has to have enough reserve fuel to be able to control its entry. So if this thing had fuel, then they could adjust the orbit and say, we want it to land at this time, so here's a nice big stretch over the Pacific Ocean. We're going we're gonna to time it to go down there, sort of the way they timed with the shuttle when it came down. You, know, you could plan the shuttle. It didn't just come in randomly. 
and land anywhere. Fortunately, they could time it getting it in. So if this thing had fuel, they could actually land it where they want. But no fuel, all you're doing is waiting for the orbit to decay. And it's, you know, the Earth's atmosphere isn't a perfectly smooth thing, so you can't, you know, that's why if you've watched the estimates of it, for a while it was it's going to hit in September, or it's going to hit September, October, and then it's been narrowed down to weeks, now they're spe pretty much specific today. So hopefully sometime today it'll be down, and it'll be down in the ocean, and it won't bother anybody. But that is something that they've changed more recently so that it should be less of a problem with things like this coming down. Now I don't know how that works with the space station because the space station is in a very low orbit. And I don't know how what they do with the, maybe there's enough fuel there to direct it and if it ever had to, because there's been issues with that with the shuttle no longer servicing it and with an issue with the Russian satellites that were, Russian spacecraft that were serving it, there's you know, the possibility that it's going to be unmanned for a while. That they're going to take the, bring the astronauts down and not leave anybody up there. So. Okay, but good. Thank you for. I meant, I meant to mention that one. Thank you for bringing it up. I wanted to mention that today, but I did check. It has not as, as of as of about five minutes ago. It hadn't said it had land, had landed yet. I'm still checking. <laughs> okay, let us know. Okay, solar system though. Now again, this is not a major part of the course. We're going to go on go through this very quickly. So we're going to talk about the formation of the solar system. I'm going to jump through and talk you a little bit about the Earth, the Moon. The planets like the Earth, Mercury, Venus, Mars, that we call the terrestrial planets. And then the Jovian planets, the big planets like Jupiter, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And then some of the other little bodies. But normally, if you take the 103 course, you'd spend you know, big weeks on each set of planets. Or maybe a group of, maybe a pair of planets. Here we're going to try to go through everything in a week. So you're only going to get a very brief overview. But you'll get a little bit of information on it. So you will notice that there's like not some of the PowerPoint slides are a little bit they're the same type of slides, but I've kind of jumped things around, and you may notice whole sections missing. Like you may go from I don't remember, but it may go from 4.1 to 4.3. I didn't think 4.2 we needed to do, so I cut it out, and I may have only done parts of these. Now, so early astronomers, what did we have? We had five planets. They had Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. So a long time ago that was it. Earth wasn't a planet yet. Remember we talked about the history, so Earth was not a planet. Earth was special. They also knew about the moon, the stars, comets, and meteors. And that was the extent of not only the solar system, but the universe. That was everything. Now they didn't know about galaxies, things that we'll talk about, star clusters, galaxies, all the details. They didn't know anything about that. And in fact, it's only been recently that the universe has grown. I mean, for many thousands of years, the universe and the solar system were essentially the same thing. The stars were just some big sphere of stars at the edge. Not this. This is showing something else. But it looks similar. Now, again, we had one moon a long time ago. Now we have 166. First moon was known since ancient times. That was our own. Can't, can't miss that one if you go outside at night, right? Now there's 166 moons, and that may have updated since this slide was done. Only still only one around the Earth, but and two around Mars. So there aren't many here, but the outer planets are found to have a whole bunch of them. Galileo found four around Jupiter. Jupiter now has a whole bunch of them. Saturn has a ton of moons. Uranus and Neptune also have you know a lot of moons each, not just a few. We've now gone from five planets to eight, adding Uranus, Neptune, and the Earth. So now we know that we're a planet, just like everything else, everyone else going around. So we've added three planets, technically. So we now have a star 
2. We added a star. Sun wasn't a star. It was, but it wasn't considered a star. It's always been a star, just like the Earth has always been a planet, but it was never considered a star. You know, the sun wasn't anything like those things that, that appear out at night, right? They're just little specks in the little specks in the big celestial sphere. So we've changed our understanding and we've added maybe what was there, we've added now what we know even better. So we've added a star, we've added some planets, asteroids were not known. Asteroids were not discovered until about, first ones, about 200 years ago. But now there's a whole belt of them. There's thousands of them between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. There's thousands of asteroids orbiting there. And in fact, we looked at a picture, was it this week? Yeah, it was the beginning of this week of this, where this Dawn spacecraft is orbiting a, one of the asteroids, Vesta. So we're actually studying them even better now. Dwarf planets are a very new object. Things like Pluto. Some of the large asteroids and some other objects that are out here in what we call the Kuiper Belt. There's some dwarf planets out there. And there are Kuiper Belt objects as well. Dwarf planets are a specific class. They're the bigger ones. So things like Pluto, which is not considered a planet, planet anymore. It's considered a dwarf planet because it doesn't meet all the criteria that a planet has to have. And when Pluto was first made a planet, there was no definition. It wasn't until, when was it, 15, 20 years, 15 years ago now? I remember. 10, 15 years ago. When they actually, the astronomers actually came up and sat down and decided what a planet has to be. A planet has to be able to do certain things because otherwise it was getting to the point where you were finding all sorts of objects in, you know, is it just orbiting the sun that makes it a planet? In that case, Every single one of these asteroids and all of these objects, now you go from nine planets to trying to memorize 15 million planets. It's a lot easier to memorize eight or nine, right? Instead of trying to memorize all of those. You know, we came to the point where you had to draw a line as to what exactly constituted a planet. And they came up with a specific definition that included a planet had to do certain things, orbiting the sun as being one of them. Being pulled into a spherical shape was another. It had to have be big enough that it actually pulled itself into a sphere by gravity. And it also had to clear out its orbit. And that's one thing that Pluto didn't do. It didn't clear out its orbit. It wasn't big enough to be able to do that. So it's no longer classified. That's why it's no longer classified as a planet. But essentially the solar system has grown. So from this little tiny bit of stuff here, now we have all sorts of other things that we've added. We divide the planets into two groups. There's the terrestrial planets, like Earth, terrestrial, which are Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. So there's four of those. And there's four Jovian planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. They're very distinct types of planets. And as we go and look at them over today and then Monday, then we will look, we'll look at each group separately. So we'll sort of look at them in groups. Because they have all of these, they have a lot of things in common. The terrestrial planets are all very close to the sun and their orbits are very close together. Relatively speaking, it may seem like it takes a while when you say it's going to take a year and a half to get to Mars. It may not seem like it's very close, but relative to the distances in the outer solar system, it's actually very close together. They're very small, both in size and mass. They're rocky. They have a solid surface. We can actually land on any of the terrestrial planets we can land on. Landed on three of them so far if you count things coming back and landing on the Earth. So we've landed on the Earth, we've landed probes on Mars, and we've, probes have been landed on Venus. We have not landed anything on Mercury yet. 
We have just, gone, just put the first satellite into orbit of Mercury earlier this year. So it's only been very recently that we've even put in anything in to look at Mercury. But they have a solid surface we can land on. They're high density. They all sink. If you've got a big giant tub of water and you can throw the Earth in it, it's going to sink. If you throw Mercury in it, it's going to sink. The Jovian planets, eh, they're about as dense as water. They're very low density, all of these. Saturn actually is less dense. Saturn is actually less dense than water. So you may hear the thing that if you could put Saturn in a gigantic bathtub, it would float. So it's actually less dense than water. They rotate slowly. They don't have a very strong magnetic field. In fact, the Earth is one of the stronger ones. No rings and very few moons. Between four terrestrial planets, there's three moons. Ours and two around Mars. And that's it. Jovian, so there's 166 moons. Where are the other 163? They're all around the Jovian planets. Now the Jovian planets are the opposite. So these are a comparison of the two, but Jovian planets are all far away from the sun. Now we thought that was the case. We thought that made sense in terms of how this planets formed that we'll look at in a little bit. But now when we look at planets around other stars that we're being able to find, we're finding Jovian planets that are close to their stars. So we're trying to rethink our formation. So what I'm going to tell you about how the solar system formed may be changing you know, over the coming 5, 10, 20 years. Their orbits are much more widely spaced. They're big, gaseous. They do not have a solid surface. We can't land on the surface of Jupiter. You know, we sent the Galileo probe, went into Jupiter, and there's no, there's no surface to land on. It just keeps getting denser and denser. Eventually the gases get so dense that it becomes like a solid. The gases and things like hydrogen behave like solids and metals and thick liquids, but there's not actually a surface down in there that you could ever go land on. So that's same for any of the Jovian planets. There is no surface down there to land on. Because unlike our planet, where there's a big difference between the atmosphere and the ground, when you get to those and you've got so much material pushing down on you, eventually the atmosphere gets so dense at the bottom that it's no different than the rock below us. You wouldn't see any difference. There wouldn't be any difference. It would get so dense atmosphere that you wouldn't see the difference between it. Whereas here, there's a big difference between you know, the atmosphere and the ground. So no solid surface. They're low density. As I said, Saturn would float on water. They rotate much faster. So a day here on like the Earth or Mars is about 24 hours. Mercury and Venus rotate much slower. But these planets rotate in 9 hours, 10 hours, much bigger. But they're zipping around. They're spinning around on their axis extremely fast. So sun would rise and set. You know, a day would be 9 hours, 9, nine 10 hours worth for some of the faster rotations. Much stronger magnetic fields, rings and moons we'll see about in a little bit. So there's a big difference. There's a big clash between the two types of planets. They're very different types close to the sun as they were far away from the sun. Now what else is out there? Well, we have comets. Comets are one that they knew about a long time ago. But we've actually now spent, sent spacecraft to comets. So we're to the point now we've been able to study them, to send spacecraft in to actually look at the nucleus of a comet. Because normally when you look at it from Earth, well, you can't see what's going on deep inside, right? You can't see what's down in there in that nucleus. It's, it's down there. There's some kind of core there. But you can't see it. So actually being able to send spacecraft into it was, was a good thing to learn about it. But a comet is essentially a big 
call it a big snowball, big dirty snowball, very loosely, extremely loosely packed snowball though, in fact. And when it comes close to the sun, that causes some of the material to evaporate, to turn into gas, and to be pushed back in a tail. And that gives the comet its tail here. And the ra- some of it forms like a little halo around it. So there's a halo, a nucleus, coma, and then big envelope around it. Now all this only occurs when it's close to the sun. So a comet has a very elliptical orbit. We did that, remember? We had it. So a very elliptical orbit and the sun may be right here. So it comes in and it comes in very close to the sun and when it gets in close, in that area, it's moving very, very fast, right? Kepler's second law. Closer to the sun is going to move the fastest. So it spends very little time here. It comes in and goes out real quick. It may only be visible for a year or two in, towards the inner solar system. And then it may spend, Halley's Comet will spend the other 70-some years of its orbit way out in the middle of nowhere, which it's doing right now. And as it comes in and it gets, then the sun heats it up and it forms the tail. So as it comes in, it'll start to form a small tail and it'll get big, oops, it'll get bigger and bigger and bigger. And you notice as it goes out, I'm doing my picture right here, the tail is always going to be pointing away from the sun. So when it comes in, that's what you'd normally think about it. The head is coming in and the tail is following it. When it leaves the solar system, the tail leads. Because it's the sun that's pushing that material back. So the sun doesn't care which way it's going. It's not like it's traveling behind it in its orbit. It is actually just being pushed away by the sun. So over here, the tail is going that way. And the comet is moving with the tail. So it's moving into its tail instead of away. The tail is, tail is leading the comet instead of the comet leading the tail in this case. So those are our basic components, just basically what a comet is. And there, I forgot I put the image in there. See, I tried to cut some things out and I didn't cut everything out. Okay. Because of the solar wind, same thing that causes the aurora we talked about earlier when it strikes the Earth, it pushes the material back. So here's an even better than my yucky drawing. Here's a much better drawing of it showing that as the comet comes in, its tail gets bigger and bigger and bigger. As it gets closer to the sun, it's getting hotter, more materials being streamed back. Then, I should say I'm going the wrong way. Going this way, as it comes in, it gets bigger. And then as it goes out, now the tail is leading. Now there's two tails. Comet actually forms two tails. The one I'm looking at, first one, the big one, is what we call an ion tail, which is all the little particles. And then there's a dusty tail. And you can start to see it form when you get in closer here. You can see that there's two tails. The dusty one is usually curved. It does follow behind a little bit in the orbit, a little more than the other one. The first one is always pushed straight away from the sun, the ion tail. So that ion tail is always straight back from the comet away from the sun. And the dust tail, which forms only at the closest approaches, is actually curved a little bit behind it in its orbit. So two tails that actually form on a comet. Okay. Meteor showers in comets. Now you've heard, seen a meteor shower? People have seen a shooting star maybe? A few of you at least? Okay. Those are little bits of comets. 
So when the comets, as they do all this, all that material that's being spread out is left along its orbit. So all that material is being pushed back in the tail is left. You know, some of it leaves the comet, but it follows in the same orbit around. So it's kind of left there, or it may, you know, comets break up. They could be from old comets that have broken up. And when the Earth actually happens to pass through that comet's path, then it's material that's left over and it burns up in the atmosphere. Now they're little teeny tiny specks. They're nothing of danger in the slightest. They burn up really high in the atmosphere and never even make it close to Earth, unlike our satellite we're waiting for. So they will hit, they will come in, they'll burn up, they'll get very, very bright there. They're just little specks of dust. But you can see, if you've ever seen one, you've seen how bright they get as they're burning up in the atmosphere. So they're extremely bright. That little bit as they as they vaporize, they can form a big bright streak going across the sky. And if you look at the right time of year, uh, let's see, right now I can't think. August is the big one with the Perseids in early August. There's another nice one that comes up in early December that's not usually too bad. Just usually people more want to go out and look at the, well, more want to go look for shooting stars in August when it's nice at night than when it's cold in December and it's, you know, 20 degrees or whatever at the beginning of December. But there's a couple others that come up as well. But that's all you're seeing there is comets. There's is little bits of comets passing, through the, passing into the Earth's atmosphere. Okay. Now bigger meteors, there are meteors that there are some things that make it through. Most of what you see when you see a shooting star or you hear about a meteor shower, those are all little tiny specks of comets. You can get larger impacts. You can get little bits of asteroid that come in. And you can get big bits of asteroid that come in. This is the crater in, a crater in Arizona, a little over a kilometer across. So not a very big crater by you know, astronomical standards. Just a relatively recent, recent one, as in happening thousands, tens of thousands. I'd have to remember the exact day, how long ago it did occur, but it was, it was, a, it was a while ago. It takes some time. And the meteors disappear over time because they get worn down. You get wind, you get rain, all sorts of things will slowly wear down and fill in this crater and eventually, you know, another million, million years from now, it will, you won't see that crater anymore. Maybe another one will have hit. On the moon, we don't have all that. No wind on the moon, no rain on the moon, no water on the moon, nothing to wash it away. No oceans on the moon for the meteor to have hit and never made an impact in the first place. You know, if this satellite comes down and hits on land, it could make a crater. Whereas if it hits in the ocean, it'll make a nice big splash, but it won't leave any scar on the ocean. The ocean will fill it back up. And that's one of the other reasons we don't see any craters on the surface, many craters on the surface <laughs> of the Earth. Three quarters of the Earth's surface is water. Three quarters of the meteorites are going to hit in the water, and we'll never see them. Okay, now how did we form the solar system? Again, this is what we think right now. But as I told you, we're rethinking some, some of this because of what we're finding in other, in other, on other planets in other, around other stars. But what we think happened is that there's a big cloud, cloud of dust, dust and gas and everything in space. You'll see almost the same thing coming again in a couple weeks when I talk about how stars form because essentially we are forming a star. We're forming, a, we're forming the star, star at the center is the sun. But for some reason, this starts to collapse. That's the other good question is why does it start to collapse? It doesn't necessarily want to collapse. It was nice and happy the way it was. 
something had to happen to it in order for it to collapse. We'll talk about that a little bit more when we talk about star formation. But what's going to happen is as it comes down, as it starts to collapse, it's going to spin faster and faster. So as ever all the material comes in towards the center, slowly, it, com- it starts to spin faster and faster and faster. Sort of like the ice skater spinning, right? You've watched ice skating. When the skater spins around, pulls their arms in, they speed up. Put their arms out, they slow down. The same thing happens with a cloud of gas and dust. It's the same thing. It's kind of what we call conservation of angular momentum. If it had certain, a certain amount of spin overall, it has to keep that. It can't just lose it. So that's why things spin faster and faster as it contracts. So this thing may have been rotating extremely slowly when it started. It could have taken millions of years to rotate once. Very long time. When it condenses down, now the sun rotate, rotates once about a month, about every 25 days. So as all the material comes into the core, it speeds up. Now how does that lead to the formation of the planets? Well, this is what we think right now. This is what we've thought for the longest time, I should say, for quite a, quite a while now. As it collapses into this disk, spins faster and faster, most of the material gets gathered to the center and forms a star. Okay, a protostar. A protostar. Again, we're going to do that in more detail later on, so we're going to go through that in much more detail. But then what we think would have formed is that, and this makes sense, if you think about it, what would form close to that star? You would expect the materials that would be left close to a very hot forming star would be rock, metal, things that don't vaporize very easily. If you're real close to the star like where Mercury formed, you wouldn't expect a lot of ice or water because it's much too hot there. Those things would be vaporized and should not exist. So we would think very close to this star, it would be mostly rocky materials. And you would think that further away, you'd get mostly icy materials. And then over time, as this starts to cool, you start to condense different material, different, the materials together, you start to form bits of rock. So you start to form little tiny clumps of rock, rocky materials. You've got a whole bunch of them. You've got billions upon billions of them there. And as they collide with each other, sometimes they stick together, sometimes they break apart. Overall, they start to form a core. So a long time, they start to actually condense into what we call planetesimals. Should have an L in there. Not planetesimals, planetesimals. <coughs> so little tiny planets. And again, they would constantly be merging with each other and forming bigger. So they keep making bigger and bigger planets. So we would think that over time we would form a few large planets. As we formed in our solar system, we've ended up with eight of them. Now under this theory, that tells us the way we think things formed says that the rocky planets that we see, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, should all form very close to the sun. And the more icy and gassy planets should be further away from the sun. Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. And that's what we see in our solar system. The Kepler satellite has been observing these, has been observing other stars, and has been detecting planets that are as big as Jupiter, but are closer, but are as close to the star, but are closer to the sun, closer to their star than you know Mercury, Venus, or in where our where our terrestrial planets are. So there's a big understand, something understanding that we're missing. 
in that section. Maybe our solar system is unusual. If we're seeing this in so many other solar systems, maybe there's something unusual about ours. We tend not to try to like to think of ourselves as special. But maybe, some, maybe our solar system forms something a little bit different. Or maybe we're seeing something in these other solar systems. It's, some, it's something that astronomers are working on right now, trying to understand how the, how the planets formed. Again, we thought we had it down. We thought we had it figured out. Okay, this makes sense. It explains exactly how our solar system is. But like any scientific theory, it makes the same prediction. It says that if stars formed around this planet, they sh- I mean, stars formed, planets formed around this star, try that right, planets formed around this star, then the terrestrial planets, the small planets, should be close to the star, and the Jovian planets, the gassy planets, should be further away. If we're not seeing that, then something has to go, something's wrong in our theory, and we've got to go back to refine it. So even in things we thought we knew, when new evidence comes up, sometimes we've got to change our scientific method. Or change our scientific method, change our theory. Now here's an example of a star, Beta Pictoris, which is surrounded by a disk of matter that glows, that'll glow this is invisible light. There's a warm disk of matter. So it's, they think this might be material where this planetary system would be forming. The size of our solar system to scale is right about there, and that's including Pluto. So we're looking well beyond what would be normally the size of our solar system. And again, this is older. We now have actual evidence of specific planets orbiting stars, and in fact, many hundreds of them. There are several hundred now that you can do. And in fact, they have what? They have the app for it where you can actually download the Exoplanet app that will update you when a new planet is discovered around these. There's actually an app that I think it's a free, pretty sure there's at least a free version of it too that you can get that will update and tell you, you know, give you a war- notification, new, new, new exoplanet such and such discovered. And there's the library, it's, like, it's in the hundreds right now of planets outside of our solar system that have been now detected. So 20 years ago when we taught the course, this was our best evidence for planets, planetary systems outside the solar system. Now we've got a lot better. We've actually got several hundred that we've actually detected. And they're not all like our solar system. So there are, dif- so there are differences and things that we have to go back to our theories of solar system formation and how our solar system formed and how other solar systems may have formed. So here's the condensation. This is what I talked about before. So this is what we th- again this is what we thought but it doesn't seem to be working in the other on the other st- on all the other stars. Essentially what it's looking at is as the temperature this blue line is the temperature. As you get further away it gets real real hot when you get close to that star. Thousands of degrees. As you get further away 5 astronomical units that's about Jupiter's distance, 10 is about Saturn's, 20 is about Uranus. It gets a lot colder. It gets extremely cold when you get way out there. So what you have is that what we would say is that, okay, when you get to this very inner thing, when you're talking about the temperature in the solar system being 1,500 degrees, 2,000 degrees, rock's going to melt. Rock isn't even going to be a solid. So you would condense metals. So under this, you would think that things like mercury would be primarily made of metal. And it looks like they are. Mercury has some rock, but it's a lot of metal. Earth, you get a little further out, so you start to get the rock starting to condense more. You get more rocky material for the Earth and Mars. And as you get even further out, that temperature drops drastically. And when you're out to the distance of 
you know, Jupiter out here, even water is a solid. Water is ice at that distance. So you could actually get water ice forming. We'll see that when we look at the moons of some of the planets, the moons of Jupiter. Uh, one of them is actually has a lot of water and may actually have liquid water on its, on its, below its surface. Not on its surface, but below its surface may actually have liquid water. So you could have had a lot of water ice. And then you get to other ones, ammonia. You see, when we see, when we look at the planets, there's a lot of water and ammonia involved in Jupiter and Saturn and the outer planets. Water, ammonia, methane are all very prominent out there. But this was our, what we call the condensation sequence and told us that, okay, we're going to form a rocky planet close to the star, and we're going to form a gaseous planet further away from the star. Well, we don't. <coughs> Everything's it's not quite that simple. There's something more complicated going on or something different going on, and our solar system is the one that's unusual. One more example of a planet and here were some of the first detections of planets outside the solar system. When you look at the star, when you look at a planet around a star, you don't see, you can't see the planet. Planets are not very bright, they're not emitting their own light, so they're hiding out there out there, but they're hidden in the glare of the star of the light of their star. But if you have a big enough planet moving, and this example here from the star in the constellation Pegasus, and you watch it and you see it moving this is its velocity over time and you see it for one, at one point moving away from you a little bit and then a couple days later it's moving towards you and then two days later it's moving away. So every, two, every couple days it's moving further and closer away from you. Then you can interpret that as being there's got to be something pulling on it and making it move because this star just isn't for some reason going to move closer and away from you and closer and away from you. There's some kind of orbit going on. So if there is a planet orbiting that star a big planet, say like a Jupiter, it's going to tug on that star and cause it to go a little bit towards you at one point as it's coming around and it's going to go a little bit away as they're both moving in their orbits. It's going to cause, the, it's going to cause a shift. And you can look for this wobble in the orbit. So that's one of the other ways that we have found evidence of planets. Again, you can't see the planet. We can't take a picture of the planet. None of these, even the Kepler ones they're looking at, they come up with some nice pretty drawings, but there's no act, you can't actually take an image of it. The planet is too faint and too close to this bright star to actually be seen. Now more complicated is if you have this, this looks like maybe one planet or one large planet that at least is causing the motion. What if you had several planets? Well, you might, then you'd sometimes get the, the things pulling in the same direction. You'd make it move faster and slower. You can see it gets a lot more complicated. There's still a pattern there. Because otherwise, it should just be a nice straight line, pretty much. It shouldn't be moving very, mu very far or fast or away or towards or away from us. And it shouldn't be varying by this much. So by looking at the observations here and figuring out what its velocity is and if we can measure those very accurately, and you can get a computer then to go in and decipher that and tell you, well, there's three planets. You know, you're not going to be able to tell just by looking at that. But that's the example shown here. So that's another evidence of different of stars, of stars with plan, other stars with planets. All right, chapter five. See, one chapter done already. We'll get to start on chapter five at least. So, as I said, we're going to breeze through these. So we'll get you a brief overview. That was sort of an overview of the general solar system. This one is going to be specifically on the Earth and the Moon, and primarily on the Moon because I'm not talking about the Earth too much. 
So in fact, I jumped all the way to 5.2 here to mention tides. We talked about gravity earlier. Well, gravity, the moon pulls on the earth and the earth pulls on the moon. Well, for right now, let's look at just how the moon pulls on the earth. Gravity depends on what? The two masses, product of the masses, and divided by the square of the distance between them. But that means if we look at the moon and the earth, now this picture is not to scale. The moon is not near that close to the earth as shown in that diagram. It's way off over here someplace to that scale. But the idea is still correct. It's the gravitational force shown by these lines is stronger on the near side of the earth. So the moon is pulling the near side of the earth more than it's pulling the far side of the earth. Don't forget that far side of the earth is what? 15,000 miles further away. So gravity is pulling stronger on this side and weaker on this side. So what it does is, first of all, if the Earth were a solid, it wouldn't make much difference. If the Earth were a solid object, it's not going to tug all the, the mountains aren't going to pull, it's not going to pull up mountains. But we got water on the surface, a lot of water on the surface. And water moves pretty freely. So what it's doing here is it's pulling the water slightly away from the Earth, tugging the water away from these regions and towards this, re towards this side. So we end up getting a high tide bulge on the side facing the moon. So wherever the moon is, whatever part of the Earth is facing the moon is going to get a high tide. As the Earth spins, six hours later, then now this part that had the high tide is now going to be over here and it's going to have a low tide. So the moon is primarily what causes the tides on the Earth and it's because it pulls on the material. And the water actually can flow. Now how to think about this, because you also get a high tide on this side, and that's the one that's usually a little more confusing, is why do you get a high tide on the other side of the Earth? You get a high, it makes sense when you're thinking of the water getting pulled away from the Earth, but this water's not getting, there's nothing over there that's pulling that water away from the Earth. One easy way to think about it is maybe think about here, it's tugging on the Earth more than it's tugging on the water. Easy way to think about it to keep it in your head, is that here it pulls the water away from the earth and it pulls the earth away from the water and when you look at the net effect of everything essentially it pulls the water ends up going this way either towards the moon or directly away from the moon and it comes in at the other two sides causing the low tides the high tides so that every 12 hours you'd get a high tide as the earth spins around so you get a high tide here 12 hours later as it spins you'd have another high tide now if you do, if you look at the sun as well, the sun also can cause a tide. The sun does the same thing to the earth. But the sun's much further away. So it's not near as big an effect. So it's about, ha about half actually. So but what happens is that if you get the earth and the, or the sun and the moon lined up, you get a much bigger tide. And I don't know, did I give that one? Nope, I give this one. Let me go back. Let me just explain it here and then I'll go back. If you get the sun and the moon lined up, so at a new moon or a full moon, when the moon and the sun are in the same direction and they're both pulling the Earth's water in the same direction, you get an extremely high tide called a spring tide. 
When you get the moon and the sun in opposite directions and one's tugging the Earth's water this way and the other's tugging the Earth's water this way at first quarter moon or third quarter moon, you get a not so big high tide. Still a high tide but much less than it normally would be and we call that a neap tide, N-E-A-P. So their spring tides are the strong ones, have nothing to do with the season, and neap are the not as, are the less strong ones. So these would occur at full moon, new moon, and these would be at first quarter and third quarter. So that's how the tides, that's basically how the tides form. And then I left the next, next slide on because I want to show what they're, what they're doing to the Earth. And what they do is they're slowing down the Earth. Because right now the Earth's rotating about once every, what, 23 hours and 56 minutes, right? So every 23 hours and 56 minutes the Earth spins around once. That's pretty fast. So the moon pulls the water straight towards it, but because the Earth is spinning so fast, that bulge actually gets carried around a little bit. And that means that gravity is now pulling down, pulling this a little bit. So it's not pulling straight in, it's pulling, because the bulge is now here, it's pulling on this extra bulge of the Earth at an angle. If the Earth is rotating this way and you have a force pulling it this way, what's happening to the Earth's rotation? Is it going to speed up or slow down? I know the answer's up there. But it's going to slow down. You're pulling it backwards. It wants to move this way, and if you've got a force pulling it this direction, the Earth is slowing down. So the Earth is constantly rotating a little bit slower every day. So days are slowly getting longer and longer. Not by a much, not something, that, something that's measurable, but not something that's going to be significant in a human lifetime or even, gener even several generations. But over time, the Earth is slowly slowing down. Eventually it'll slow down to the point where the Earth and the Moon always point towards the same, point towards each other. So that would mean, for example, if you're standing on the Moon right now and you're on the near side of the Moon and you can see the Earth in the sky, you'll always see the Earth in the sky. If you're on the other side of the Moon, Earth doesn't exist as far as you're concerned. You can't, you never see it. Unless you go make that trip around the Moon to see it, you'll never see it. Eventually, over many millions and billions of years, the Earth will slow down to the point where it's locked in orbit with the Moon so that if this happens to stop over Harrisburg, then we'll always see the Moon. It'll always be up. It won't rise or set. It'll always be there. But if you're on the other side where it doesn't occur, or if that happens to occur, say, over Japan, then we'll never see the Moon. The Moon will never, no longer exist. It won't rise or set at all. We'd never see it. So, Earth and Moon. So we're about halfway through chapter, well, halfway through what I want to cover in chapter 5. I think that ended, that ended tides. And I have a couple I'm going to talk about on the surface of the Moon, which I'll do Monday. So Monday we'll do the rest of 5 and 6, and a good chunk of 6, and then we have 7 and 8. So hopefully we'll be through a lot of it by Wednesday. So if there are questions, otherwise I'm going to let you take your break, and then we'll come back and I'll get the computer set up for our, and get our lab set up for you. Questions, questions? No questions.